So we're reading from Matthew chapter 19. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Whatever, uh, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But Jesus said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been saved from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves uh, eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. And children were brought to Jesus, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honour your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbour as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept, what still do I lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. For he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in a new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left brothers, or houses, sorry, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please keep your Bibles open. I thought there might be a bit of objection there. I thought people might come back. I was fishing for a compliment. Uh, You guys failed miserably. Uh, But maybe think of someone else for a moment, okay? Think of that person. Who do you find impressive? Impressive. 
Let me put it another way. What impresses you? What is it that impresses you? Is it being respectable? So are you impressed by those who seem morally decent and upright? They have high standards. They're law-abiding and champion what is right and oppose what is wrong. You see those people there. They seem to sort of have high standards. And they live it out. Well, perhaps it's not that. Perhaps it's those with families. For you, you respect someone who's married and has children. More than those who don't, perhaps. Uh, Maybe it's not that. Maybe it's simply money. What you find impressive is pure success. Someone who's worked hard to forge a career for themselves and amassed wealth in the process. If you're struggling to work out what your answer is to those three, and you've got kids, then ask yourself honestly, what do I want most for them? It would be quite a telling thing to answer that question. Is your strongest desire for them that they start a family, or do well at school so that they get a good career, or that they're seen by others to be respectable? Those are all quite normal things to wish for your children, but is that what you desire for them most? What impresses you? Well, Jesus doesn't say any of those things are evil. But he does bring a surprising verdict in this passage. We've just read it. In fact, his verdict is so shocking that the disciples are left with only one question. They ask this in verse 25. Who then can be saved? That's their response to what Jesus has been saying. The verdict he's been bringing on people in the passage. Who then can be saved? I think if we've understood Jesus correctly today, then we will be asking that too. Who then can be saved? If you want a one-verse summary, it's always helpful when we can sort of pick a summary, isn't it? One-verse summary uh, of Jesus' verdict is there in verse 30, the very last verse we read. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. What does Jesus mean? Many who are first will be last. You might be impressive now, and you can end up outside of God's kingdom. Your status, your finances, or even your morally decent behaviour won't be of any help to you. In fact, it might even hinder you from seeing your helplessness. The last will be first. Well, this means that you might have none of those things that the world sees as impressive and enter the kingdom of God. And we are to view everything really now through that lens, through the lens of Jesus' kingdom. The first will be last and the last will be first. And we're going to see that in Jesus' interaction with two impressive people in this chapter. Uh, There's the Pharisees in the first half and there's the rich young man in the second half. And we're going to see his interaction with the last and the least as well. We're going to see the children that the disciples have chased away. And the brief mention of eunuchs. Has anyone heard the word eunuch before? But that falls smack bang in the middle of Matthew's chapter. That's from verses 10 to 15. So let's start with the many who are first will be last. And we're going to see that in verses 3 to 9. And then we're going to see that in verses 16 all the way through to verse 22. So first up, the Pharisees. What do the Pharisees 
do in verse 3? Well, they come to Jesus and they test him by asking their question. They say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? It's probably a loaded question, isn't it? Thinking, why would someone ask that question? Maybe they're thinking about divorcing their wife. Um, But that's what they do. But they're coming to test Jesus, aren't they? Their choice of topic for debates with Jesus might seem random. But Matthew has told us in verse 1 that Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem. He's left Galilee and he's entered Judea. And if I was to ask you who the governor of Judea is, bit of a blank look, Herod, good guess, he's the governor of Judea. And what do we know about Herod? Married his brother's wife, his brother's wife had John the Baptist beheaded because she didn't like him speaking out about it. So it's not so random now, is it, that they're asking him about divorce? Because if they can, for them, this is the perfect opportunity. If they can catch Jesus taking a more liberal line, saying, yeah, why not? Then they can nail him for being a heretic. But if he takes a more conservative line, which I think they suspect he will do, that he's asking for it. And he's signing his own death warrant. So it's a win-win situation, or so they see. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to test him. And they come with their wisdom, don't they? Or their knowledge they come with. And so I think, um, well, we've been reading Matthew's Gospel. And in chapter 17, verse 12, Jesus said this would happen. So 17, verse 12 says this. Jesus says, talking about John the Baptist, but I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognise him but did him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. So Jesus knows exactly, he's just said what's happening here. They're going to want to do to me what they did to John. So though the Pharisees might be rubbing their hands thinking, right, we've got him now, Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. But if he knows that, why is he there? Well, we've been seeing, haven't we, that as the Messiah, Jesus will save his people from their sin. And he'll do that by taking on the curse of God that they deserved, by dying in their place. And that's why his destination is Jerusalem. That's where it's going to take place. And as he gets closer to that target, and we'll see, this is the start of a new section um, in Matthew from chapter 19. And it it really is that that journey to Jerusalem. But as he gets closer to that target, so will their threats kind of increase. You see this in in chapter 23. So just jump over to chapter 23, uh, 22, sorry. You look at verse 15. 22 verse 15. The Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his talk and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And then they say, Tell us, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Uh, look at verse 23. The same day, Tertius came to him and asked him a question saying, Teacher, if a man dies having no children, there's another scenario, what happens? What about verse 35, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law. 
three times in one chapter. It's like three rounds of boxing, isn't it? You know, come on, Jesus. They're going up against him. They're pitting their knowledge against his wisdom. And you notice that they need to keep doing that because they're not winning. And in verse, uh, verse 41, Jesus asks them a question and they can't answer it. And we're actually told in verse 46, no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So we are going to see that ultimately their wisdom, when they come up against Jesus and they think they've got knowledge, but really they're not going to uh, be able to, to win that battle. And the reason Jesus knows more than them, or he has wisdom and they don't, is because he fears the Lord. Proverbs tells us, doesn't it, that the beginning of wisdom, true wisdom, is the fear of the Lord. And though they knew a lot, they did not know God. And therefore they don't know anything really. For all their knowledge, they did not know God. That's why Jesus is focused back to chapter 19. When they ask their question, Jesus' focus isn't divorce itself, but God. His focus is God, isn't it? He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them man and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh? What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus' focus isn't divorce, but God, because if you don't get God right, you're not going to get marriage right, you're not going to get any of God's laws right. And they didn't know God. Um, We do the same thing. So what would people assume marriage is today? Well, they assume it's a joining together, don't they, of household, diary, bank accounts, offspring, families coming together. That's the joining that they think happens at marriage between two people. But it's, if we looked at, back at that, what Jesus has just said, it's not us who do the joining together, it's God who does the joining together. Well, therefore, God has joined together. And so the union is far more than that. It's because if it was just that, at any point you could say, hey, we, don't, we decide we don't want to be joined any longer, and therefore you can just separate out the two and divide, settle the difference, which is what we do, isn't it, with divorce lawyers and stuff. It's, you know, we're just going to go back to where we were. But it's not that kind of union. Marriage is God's idea. He defines it and he makes the union himself. And you see, it reflects his work in creation, doesn't it? Just as he took the literal flesh of Adam, the rib. (laughs) It doesn't have an expression, like uh, a cockney expression that's like my old rib or something like that. Anyway, don't worry. Um, They took the rib of Adam and from the flesh he made woman. And so in the coming together again of the woman and the man, in sexual union, they go from being two to one flesh. They're reunited. So it reflects God, God's work in creation. 
So forgive me for digging through the archives for this song, but the Spice Girls were right, okay? They said, two, read, two become one. And I think they were talking about sex, because as far as I know, every pop song is talking about sex. So um, I think they were right, two become one. So as one flesh, there'll be no clean break, you know, just settling up, clean break, to separate this union is to tear it apart. And that's pretty vivid, isn't it? You know, the tearing apart of one flesh is like, you know, it's going to cause damage, it's going to be painful, it's going to be destructive. And that's why Jesus says that adultery, which alone affects that union, is cause for divorce. Only adultery is cause for divorce. Now, Sam was talking on forgiveness last week, and that's not the, not the only option for Christians. There can be forgiveness. And of course that will take time and that will be a painful thing in itself. Uh, but, but God makes that possible. This is a really big topic. And it's at the very start of our passage. Um, and we will have some time for questions. So if you do have questions about this particular thing, jot them down now. And we'll have time to talk about them afterwards. But Jesus' main application, isn't it, in verse... Uh, verse 8 he said to them he's talking to the Pharisees there his main application for the Pharisees is to reveal the true state of their heart that they have hard hearts and that's why there was this concession of Moses they were allowed to divorce but it wasn't meant to be that way and actually there's a prosecution here as well not just a, a um, not just Jesus uh, revealing the true state of their hearts, but he's actually prosecuting them for, for adultery. Because he says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality and marries another, commits adultery. You know, they, they approved of the practice of divorce and then remarriage and that kind of thing. And, and he says, The true state of your heart is hard, and you're committing adultery. Really, there's adultery um, is the main motivation. Well, Jesus' response, we've seen the response to the Pharisees, haven't we? And it's uh, Jesus' says, you know, these might be important people. These might be people who are considered to be knowledgeable. And they are the, the first that people look to. But they're being proven, aren't they, to be the last? And that's the same thing with the rich young man. I don't know if you looked at that, but that's similar. Let's have a look in verses 16 to 22. And behold, a man came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, what good must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honour your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbour as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what still do I lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So Jesus knows where this guy's true confidence lies. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, but he comes with a good question, and I think his question is a bit more positive. He's saying, I want to go have eternal life, 
what must I do to, to get it? The Pharisees were saying, you know, what do we need to avoid? This, he's positively saying, oh, what, you know, I'm willing to do it. Tell me how I do it. Um, and Jesus points him as well to the law. But get this, Jesus is not saying, he's given him a list, and that might be a list that he thinks he's done. But he's started with saying, who's good? Who is good? Only God is good. And so the man's full sense of his own goodness and, and being able to, to fulfil the law is really the thing that Jesus is undermining here. His list is only half of the Ten Commandments. And when, when he says to the guy, love your neighbour as yourself, well, the guy might think that he has done that. But all Jesus has to say is, and what about your money? Which, interestingly, is not, is you shall not covet, which is concerned with greed, is not the command in the list, is it? It's the one that's missing of those five. All of those things to other people, he's missed out, you shall not covet. And so all he has to say in order to expose that the man really isn't doing what he thinks he's doing is to say, give your money away then. So he shows that where their confidence lies, he knows that that's that's truly where their confidence lies and he takes aim at it for their good, lovingly, because otherwise they'll be blind to their need of him. So they're the two impressive ones, the, the first, and maybe still the first in society, the people who think, well, they're the knowledgeable ones, they know more than anyone else, or they've got more than anyone else, they're loaded. And Jesus says, they'll be last. That's the first shall be last. Many who are first, Jesus says, will be last. Their knowledge of God's law, their attempts to keep it, or even their status here and now, won't get them into heaven. And we may think our attempts at living a respectable or successful life are going to have that traction too. It won't. If you want a humorous way to imagine it, it's the equivalent of a camel hoping that his saliva will help him to slip through the eye of a needle. That's the kind of delusion. He's not going to make it. It's impossible for him. Thinking that all, any of those things are going to get us into the kingdom of heaven it's like thinking you're a camel who can douse yourself in saliva and then slip through the eye of a needle. That's how I picture it, okay? It's just not going to happen. Jesus leaves us in no doubts. For man, this is impossible. He says that, doesn't he? In verse 26. With man, this is impossible. But it is possible with God. And that is exactly why Jesus is on his journey to Jerusalem, his one act of obedience and love for us is absolutely necessary for any sinner to be made right with God. And that's the only way. It's impossible. You can't do it. I can't do it. But he can. So, that was the first should be last. And now we're just going to briefly look at the last will be first. And I think this is Jesus' main application for his disciples, actually. Because after his conversation with the person involved, they abruptly exit, don't they? So uh, did you notice that somewhere between between verse 9 and 10, the Pharisees have disappeared? 
They fall, they've fallen through the gap between verses 9 and 10. They're not there anymore. And you notice in verse 22, the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. He's the only man to have met Jesus and to have gone away sad, for he had great possessions. So they've gone, and Jesus' main application is for his disciples in, that, in what he says next. We're going to think about that. His debrief, after each exit, so the last will be first, his de- debrief is with them. They are not to have the world's view of people, but to have a kingdom view of them. They're not to see people as the world sees them, but to see people with a kingdom view. And so in verse 10, when the disciples come out with, it's better not to marry than Jesus, he doesn't really correct them, does he? He doesn't start saying, oh, no, 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 marriage is lovely, you know, here are all the great reasons to get married. He says, if they're beginning to rethink what marriage is for, Jesus is only going to encourage them towards a kingdom perspective on marriage and on singleness. Because he wants them to have a kingdom view. And he says there'll be people who can't get married. There'll be people who don't get married. There'll be people who don't get married because they want to be obedient to Jesus. And none of those people are any worse off if they're in the kingdom of heaven. Now that is pretty countercultural, isn't it? Because guaranteed back in that day, in Jewish culture, to have no offspring was just not even a, you know, a concept. Like, you know, it wasn't anything that people would even think about. And today, the picture we have of a full and happy life, well, it's that family picture, isn't it? You know, the, family, the Facebook profile pictures are all people having fun with their families. So it's pretty countercultural for Jesus to say... Let the one who is able to receive this, receive this. You know, that actually singleness might actually be a good thing. But what is important is not whether you're married or whether you're not married. What's important is that you belong to the kingdom of heaven. That's the new kingdom perspective there to have. And we see that the disciples haven't really got that perspective yet, because in verse 13... Children are brought to Jesus, and what do they want to do with them? You know, go on, clear off you lot. Children weren't seen as important in that culture, so, so you can, you know, you, you, Jesus is too important for you. So really, that's what Jesus is challenging here for all his disciples. The application is, do you not know that this, my kingdom turns everything on its head? And the people who weren't respectable or respected, Jesus has called. And that includes you, disciples. You weren't respectable or respected when Jesus called you. But having been welcomed by by him, don't exclude others on that basis of importance. On the world's view of what is important. Jesus has to say to them, doesn't he, in verse, uh, verse 14, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. 
He has to, he has to correct them. You think that these children are unimportant, but to them belongs the kingdom of heaven. So they've got things entirely wrong. Well, in verse 27, if we look at that, this is the last bit of our passage. Peter has just heard Jesus say that if the young man leaves everything, he will have treasure in heaven. And Peter pipes up saying, well, we've left everything and followed you. What will we have? So not quite thinking of other people yet, but, you know, wanting to make sure, you know, Jesus, you know, we have left everything to follow you. What are we going to have? Well, Jesus does say, doesn't he? You who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones. These unlikely, these, these um, disrespect, disrespectable nobodies are going to be the ones who, in the new kingdom who are going to be judging Israel. The last shall be first. But then he goes on to say, and everyone, everyone who has left uh, houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. It's just, you know, that's the gospel, isn't it? Everyone who is in the kingdom of heaven will have eternal life. Will receive a hundredfold what they, anything that they could pass up in this life. Jesus' final word here about them will be the final word on anyone who enters his kingdom. So what does this mean for us? Well, if you're new and looking into what it means to be a Christian, we're delighted that you're here. Uh, the world we live in focuses on... Uh, those things, isn't it? Outward appearance. Status. And perhaps that's left you feeling proud. Or it's left you feeling rejected. Maybe you've had that impression about Christianity that is for the strong, the pure and the respectable. Can you see that Jesus says the opposite? He says that his kingdom flips everything on its head. And through his death, and only that way, the very least, those who have angered him most, can be welcomed into it. And that's what he'd say your greatest need is. Not status, not more money, not that second job, not clean living even, to to sort your act out, but for him to die for you. If you're used to being in church, it's just worth seeing, isn't it, that people who place their confidence in what they knew about the Bible, they were just as lost. You know, the man man might have been trusting in his riches, but if they're trusting in their own knowledge to save them, they'll be be, um, surprised. To To have any confidence that ultimately rests on something we need to do, just like the rich young man... It's going to end in sadness as we fail to see our need of Jesus. So if you're a Christian, and as my opening illustration probably revealed about us, we need to see everything, be it whether people have a family, whether people have status and lots of achievements. We need to see all those things in light of Jesus' kingdom. And so the question isn't, have they got those things or do they impress me but are they in the kingdom 
That's the big question. We're still far too impressed by the things of this world and those that have them. And I think we're less inclined, aren't we, towards those who are seen as nobodies and even a little embarrassed by them. And even when people are a Christian brother or sister and it's going to be seen in who we share the gospel with. We'll either avoid the rich and successful people because their lives look great or we'll be far more pleased if they walk into our church. What matters most is, is someone in the kingdom? When you're chatting to your friends, the question is not, have they got this, have they got that? Are they better than me? Are they more successful than me? The question is not that, it's are they in the kingdom? Let's pray. Father God, uh, we have the wrong perspective and yet you um, show us what really matters. It's not ultimately whether we have knowledge or lack knowledge, whether we have a spouse or children or stay single, whether we have money or status or achievement, but whether we're in your kingdom. We know that we don't deserve to be in that kingdom and that it's impossible for us to work our own way there. Whatever the false confidence we have about ourselves and our merit before you, please erode it by the truth of your word. And where we are so quick to assess others that way, we need your true perspective. Please help us to see people in light of your coming kingdom and to see that that will be the only true assessment on them too. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.